Who knows what Jay-Z, J.K. Rowling, Bill Gates and Oprah Winfrey all have in common? Okay, I will tell you then. They have all overcome failure in one shape or form to go on to gain success in their respective careers. Welcome to My Perfect Failure. Join us as we delve into the world of our perfect failures. We will interview, explore, and discuss how our perfect failures can lead us to success. Join us and tune in. So super excited today. My my my, my sort of energy has lifted because I realized I was going to be talking to this guy today. My energy was good anyway, but... You know, sometimes people make your energy rise that little bit higher. And that's what, what these guests have done for me. And particularly what we're going to focus on today during today's discussion stroke episode. So my guest today, so firstly, we've got another fantastic guest for you for My Perfect Failures, Failure. And my guest today is a transformational mindset change coach who guides tech companies, C-suite executives and entrepreneurs to amazing levels of growth. He is the brains behind the T3 ecosystem, a collection of hackers, thinkers, activists, and dreamers who are sprouting new ideas and stories and products based around the idea of interdependence. His story of rebooting his life, he told during his recent TEDx talk in 2021, which is amazing, by the way. I've already watched that a number of times, and there's always different bits that I missed that inspire me, so I know that I'll be watching that again. He's also the host of the brilliant podcast, A Revolution of Interdependence, which I've very fortunately had an opportunity to appear on. So a very, very warm welcome to my perfect failure, Will Samson. How are you, Will? I am well, Paul. Thank you. It's such a delight to be with you. And I share the energy level because we had such a great conversation yeah, yeah. with you and I talked last. And so I'm super excited to talk more. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny how that happens, isn't it? When you, you know, when you're doing things that you kind of love and you're, you're speaking to people that you connect with, it just raises the energy levels. And, and even it doesn't have to be a bad day, but, you know, when you're doing good things, that's what, that's what happens. So will you know obviously I've, you know, we've had a, a couple of conversations which i which i really enjoyed and they were really insightful for me and i was delighted when you agreed to come on my perfect failure um you've got a wonderful journey and i'm i'm really keen to get into the subject matter so for everybody listening uh, the title of this particular episode is called interdependence a blueprint to succeed with will samson and he's going to get into that in terms of what it interdependence is but uh we were speaking a minute ago and i asked you where you're from because i know you were in washington but you were giving me a bit more of a, a breakdown and i thought it would be lovely for everybody else to hear that with me so so yeah so your background you i know you're based in washington but you know did you is that where you grew up no so i grew up outside of new york city and my whole neighborhood, if you've seen the show Mad Men and, yeah. you, and you know the, the guys in the gray flannel suits who went oh. into New York and then came home in the evening and their wife poured a martini, that was my neighborhood. Oh, 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 I love it. It was almost magical. Um, and I and I, I graduated from from high school in New Jersey, right outside of New York City. Um, but when I was when I was young, when I was 19 years old, I came to the South uh, to do school. 
And um, I was actually doing an internship. So I stayed with a family and um, it was, a, I still remember their name. Their names were the Rickmans. And Mrs. Rickman was, if, if you know anything about the American South, you know that it's a big culture of food. And Mrs. Rickman created this breakfast that was just unbelievable biscuits and, and, and ham and just kind of almost a, almost an English breakfast, mm. but, in, but in the American South. And I thought, well, this is so nice that she, um, that she did that for, for me on the first day. Well, it turns out that's how she cooked every day. <laughs> and I thought, well, my goodness, if this is what South is like, I want more of this. So I have spent, and I'm a huge, cause I'm a huge foodie. So yeah. I've spent my whole life in the American Southeast, mostly in Virginia and Kentucky. Okay. Um, but, uh, and right now I'm in the Virginia suburbs of Washington, DC. So I, uh, I very much love the South, but then I also think of myself globally as well, mm. because I'm so connected, thankfully to people around the, around the world. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. Cause you do, do you spoke last time and I, you, travel for work and speaking and whatnot and mixing with you connecting with your your network yeah and america is such a vast country as well isn't it so there's so many places i guess that you know wonderful places to explore visit and and sample amazing food yes okay so i i so a little bit of a clue i did mention that as we begun that i was keen to find out a little bit more about inter dependence and i also mentioned about your tedx talk which is brilliant and i'm going to leave that in the, the show notes so i thought that might be a, a nice place to kind of start with your your tedx talk and you know was that where did you become cognizant of interdependence being important yeah so we always carry our bi biographies with us we carry our story we're a collection mm -hmm. of our stories and my my story in my formative years is that I was the youngest of six. I was the only boy. Um, very religious household, but not necessarily uh, paid it well attention to. I've often joked that I felt like my parent, like I had an older brother named Jesus and my parents kind of liked him a bit mm, more. Yeah. So I always had this sense because they were so active in, in church work and all that. But I was sort of the guy left on my own. And so from a very early age, I was looking for... Who's my community? Who's my people? Mm. And so there's this kind of story that weaves itself throughout my life of looking for my people, trying to find who, who's my, how, do, you know, where do I belong? Where do I fit? How do I find people to do life together with me? And I've been very blessed by that. I get, I spent seven years in an intentional community in Lexington, Kentucky. I have had some amazing uh, networks of people, including um, people that I'm actually going to go see in Dubai next month. Um, but there's a particular crisis point in my life, which if you've seen the TEDx talk, you'll know, which is that sometime in my 40s, I began to, um, there was a lot of things that in my life that weren't working out the way I had hoped they would. There was a lot of disappointments, a lot of just, just things that just stuff, man, stuff mm. that happens. Life stuff. It was life. Yeah. yeah. And um and often we can look internally to find the resources that we need. I sadly um, turned to alcohol as a coping mechanism. And I spent too many years, um, almost 10 years kind of living that way where I was sort of deeply, deeply sad and also looking for solutions in something that was never going to actually solve my problem. When I 
when I realized that was a problem was when I ran into significant issues, when my, when my behavior got to be problematic and really was going to lead me to five weeks in jail. Um, I began to look around me and say, what, what do I do? How do I, how do I put this back together? Mm. At this point I had burned a lot of my life down. Yeah. I had burned up relationships, job situations, entrepreneurial opportunities. There was just a lot of, I mean, I'm still competent. I had a PhD. Mm. I was a smart guy, but I really let go of a lot of opportunities. And I found myself in the position of kind of having to reboot my life, having to do Mm. a significant reboot. And um, just as a thought experiment for your listeners, go and do rebooting your life when you're older. And what they'll find is that there's a lot of stories about people who rebooted their life when they were 29 or 33 mm. or 39, right? I was 50, I was in my 50s. I was in my early 50s. And there's not a whole lot of stories about people who rebooted their life later in life. But I had this, what I consider to now be one of my secret weapons, which was this recovery community. Um, so as I was trying to figure out how do I how do I piece my life together? How do I find the resources to do what I need to do? I found a group of people that were like me trying to solve a common problem, which in our case was substance abuse. And they said, let us love you until you can love yourself. Let us believe in you until you can believe in yourself. And at that point, Paul, honestly, I had very little option. I, mm. The option was to keep destroying my life yeah. or to say, okay, got it. Please, I need your help. I need mm. your love. I need your belief. And in the in my TEDx talk, I, I tell this story when I was so I was going to be sentenced to jail. And American jail is um, not like American American prison. Often in popular uh, stories, you see prisons. Jail is more like a I compare it to like the motor vehicle department, but with bad food, where you're just kind of sort of stuck, you're just kind of stuck sitting around for for weeks. Not a whole so, lot. To- so probably better than the food that I serve up. <laughs> That's proper jail. <laughs> It could be. And you can't get a curry anywhere in American jails. That's that's tough. That's tough. But as I was getting ready to be sentenced, so so I I showed up and I was the last person to get sentenced that day. And the judge was looking out in the courtroom and she couldn't understand why there were still 18 people Mm. in the court, in the courtroom. And so she inquired, she said, "Are, are you what are you all here for? And my attorney said, well, they're here to support Mr. Sampson, your honor. And. Paul, it was like it was like a movie script, but mm. but I have enough people around that actually heard these words and can witness to them. Eighteen people, that's remarkable. Yeah, and thirteen of them were from my my recovery community. Yeah, and she looked at me and she said, "Mr. Sampson, you're very fortunate. Be sure to lean on those people when your time with us is done." And five weeks later, and there was some even in that time, there was I I lost a sister to cancer while I was actually wow. in, waiting out that sentence. But when I came out, I had seen I when I when I went into that five week period where I had a lot of time to think, a lot of time to work on myself. Mm-hmm. I've often said that that those five weeks in jail were without a doubt nothing I would ever choose mm-hmm. again, but without a doubt the most powerful time of spiritual transformation in my life, hands down, no mm-hmm. questions asked. Yeah. Um, and when I went in, I carried with me the faces and the wishes of those people. I carried their love in with me. So when I came out, I was ready to serve and I was ready to begin to ask this question of how do we create a world where we are interdependent on purpose? Mm. We're all dependent. We're all mutually dependent on 
all kinds of people we don't know are the people who keep our lights on, the people who run our roads and mm-hmm. deliver, you know, fold the clothes and get them to the store and unpack them and put them out the cash cashiers and all that. But I began to ask, how do I actually create a world where I recognize and nurture this 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 uh, network of interdependence that exists around me? And that's what I've now been able to do for more than three years, and I'm I'm super delighted to. Um, to share what I've learned from that experience with your audience. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you are. And when you started to have, I guess, the realization, you, you know, you had this opportunity, you had this amazing community that were supporting you. You said that you had 18 people in, in the courtroom. And the you know, as, a, as a mechanism to support you, not just you, but support other people interdependence, was there like a light bulb moment when you think actually there is something here we are missing a trick was there a moment where it all sort of computed and you thought this is something i need to take the baton yeah i i I would say it more like this paul it wasn't so much a moment as it was a five-week unfurling or five-week realization yeah when when you're in jail there's nothing to do um you could buy the cheap uh, headphones and listen to the TV, but the TV is only playing network television, not even anything interesting Mm. to watch. Yeah. And so um, I realized because of the work I'd been doing, because of the recovery work I've been doing, I realized that this was this, I, I don't know exactly why we are at times presented with opportunities, but I know that life and overcoming failure as well is what we make of those opportunities. Mm. So I was at this particular time where I was, where I realized there was going to have to be some interior work done on myself. Um, and so um, th- those five weeks, I had nothing but pads of paper and uh, what I call a squishy pen. I'm not sure mm-hmm. that that's the technical term for them because a, an actual pen could hurt somebody, yeah. but they have these pens that actually <laughs> couldn't, you couldn't shiv another jailmate if you wanted mm-hmm. to. And so I had these these weird little squishy pens and a pad of paper. And I wrote for more than a hundred pages. I just filled up a hundred pages of that paper. And through that, what I began to do was actually take account of all the things I had in my life Mm. already. Forget about nurturing a new network, just the amazing network. Just the fact Mm. that I had 18 people willing to take time off on a Tuesday morning and show up at the courthouse for me to support me. Um, Really, um, first of all, that was sort of lesson number one was as I took the time, and I, I think that's I think that's part of the problem, Paul, is we don't often have that time away. Yeah. Maybe we take two days to go off into the woods or three days to a monastery or whatever. I had five weeks with nothing to do but but journal mm-hmm. and share with other people who were trying to figure out how to get through the boredom. Um, so, so for me, part of the, the first part of that journey was really just the realization of it, the journaling, the, the listing of, oh, wow, I am mm. very, very blessed. But the other thing was the, the accident of timing that was the pandemic. So yeah. the pandemic for me was such an incredible opportunity because, um, I got out and then not too long after, um, the pandemic occurred. And everything in the United States, I know similar in, in the UK, everything shut down. So, so there weren't on, there weren't in-person recovery meetings. And at that point I had been um, 
using this interesting product no one had ever heard of called Zoom. So I had been using it for several years. I run a nonprofit on the side and I'd been using it for several years. And I said, hey, it's okay if we can't meet in person. I know this way we can have meetings Mm. online and it's totally safe and it's really, it's great. And Mm. I'll help you set it up. And so what happened was I, I very quickly in my recovery journey moved into a position of service, of serving others. And that became that became sort of the the key that unlocked the door Mm. that led me into the mansion that has all these mysteries this realization that wow i can i'm actually of service to other people Mm. i can do something i can be of help um and that opportunity and and i've now been running that meeting for almost three years um and so you know the that opportunity to be of help to be there to be present for people um really helped me helped at least set the stage for the work that I began to do around interdependence. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? So everything that you said is interesting, remarkable how you've how you've turned things around. And even, you know, that five week period, that obviously was really important for you. It you know, that five weeks of solitude you know, where you're able to pen and paper, you know, you you know, spew your thoughts out onto paper and really, I guess, you know, hone in to how you wanted to serve and support people and be supported when you came out. Without that five weeks, admittedly, you know, it wasn't something that you, you know, you prepped for, it wasn't something you planned, but it was kind of quite remarkable what you've done in that period thank you yeah and and you know um anthropologists have a term they call liminality Mm. or or liminal space and so usually they would use it to to describe when a when a young boy was reaching puberty and they would send him out into the woods to live on his own for a month or a week or however long their culture uh supported and that was that time when they realized their whole life was ahead of them. So now you're going to go out and you're going to have this wilderness experience where you learn how to uh, truly own your life and understand your purpose and what you're supposed to do in the world. And we kind of recognize that. That makes sense. Okay, that's something that a a young person entering adulthood would do. Um, I think one of the things that I wonder, Paul, and I've begun to suspect is that part of the problem with, with our our inability to take advantage of these opportunities we're given is mm. that we reach a certain point where we think there's no more growth. There's no more real forward momo- momentum. Mm. We're not going to, we're just going to sort of do yeah. whatever we've been doing, maybe a little marginally better. I'll give you an example. I, I have a, a friend who was talking to me, this was a couple of weeks ago, but she was, she's about my age. So mid to late fifties um, and going to buy her a house. So she was, they were downsizing and they were going to buy a house and she was telling me how she wanted to um, she was going to buy a house, but she wanted to be sure there was a master bedroom on the first floor because she knew there'd come a time when she wouldn't be able to go up and down stairs. And my first thought was, Oh my goodness, you're, you're, you're quite young still. And this is a very athletic person. You're quite young still. And you're already thinking about when you're not going to be able to, yeah, when you're going to go downhill. And so, I I I think part of the secret for me, Paul, was that I realized 
um, this was a really unique opportunity and I could take advantage mm. of it. And it doesn't matter. And I think that's what I would stress when it comes to like recovering from failure. It doesn't matter when you recover. It doesn't matter when you have to reboot. It doesn't mm. matter when you have to start over. What we have and what we're accountable for are the days between that time and the rest of our life, whenever that time is. Mm. And I, for, for a whole variety of reasons, I realized that. And that's why I was really able to spend a lot of time thinking about this question of interdependence and how that deeply related to my purpose, why I was put here in the world. Yeah. Can I, I just want to ask a quick question, if I may, then I want to dig into interdependence. So in relation to people now that potentially listen to this, that are going through difficult moments where potentially, you know, maybe they're not, maybe they know deep down they're not giving the best, of themselves right. do, do you think there is i don't know um there's an ego thing where we don't want to admit that we're that we're struggling a little bit and it's easier to press on in denial and i guess in some respects self-combust right yeah i think there's at least two factors at work in in answering your question First of all, we live in a culture that has given um, has given a false kind of belief mm. to in independence and self help. Yeah, so we we lionize and we worship that entrepreneur, but the reality is that every entrepreneur has um, has a story behind mm. it. Um, if uh, the example I often give is that of Richard Branson, you know, when Richard Branson was twenty three years old, he went bankrupt. His mom mortgaged her home to keep that little Virgin Records mm. store afloat in yeah. East London. And now he's the self-made billionaire. And he is. Yeah. The reality is that he is because he recognized he was able to take the assistance. The He was able to live interdependently. And so I think we're just awash in this culture. It, 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 you know, it came out of the Industrial Revolution. It got almost weaponized in America and then spread through, in the United States mm. and then spread throughout the rest of the globe. This kind of false belief in independence. And I'm not suggesting that we be codependent on other people, but but I think there is a kind of toxic independence. And so that's sort mm -hmm. of one problem. When people realize, wow, I'm in a really tight spot. We have this belief that we're supposed to solve all of our problems mm -hmm. ourselves. And for the most successful entrepreneur in the world, that's not true. Yeah, yeah, totally. So if that's not true for Elon Musk or Richard Branson, yeah. why would it be true for those of us who are mm -hmm. dealing with more everyday problems. Mm. Um, and I said there was a second reason and I don't remember what it was, but okay. that's, that's, okay. An, that's, that's an important uh, part of and, it. And so, so I can segue in quite nicely. So on your TEDx talk, you spoke around the self-help industry. So I didn't know this stat. So is it about 11 billion is spent in the self-help industry sort of yearly? And I believe in America, people are getting more, becoming more depressed. Right. Which, yep. Is, yep. which is staggering. Yeah. It's interesting. That talks about a year old and that number has gone to 13 billion. So we really? now spend 13 billion a year on a variety of self-help products. That's books, videos, um, you know, courses, webinars, retreats. Um, but it's actually not just America. It's it is globally. The World Health Organization mm. says globally yeah. we become more and more depressed every year. And in the United States, at least the fastest growing rate of death 
are for what they call deaths of despair, which are deaths from alcohol, liver disease, and drug overdose. And that's primarily, that's even more so among men. Yeah. And those are really deaths of despair because people are turning to coping me- mechanisms because they can't face the reality. And, and if I may, I just remembered what my second point yeah. was with this false kind of ind- independence. But, but I think the other reason why it's, why we, and this is going to sound almost too simplistic, but the other reason we don't tackle hard problems is precisely because they're hard. Um, we sometimes joke in the recovery community that sober stands for uh, son of a B, everything's real. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I suddenly have to face all this, all this, all the re- thing, these realities that I wanted to avoid. Um, and, and so if we don't necessarily have a history of tackling hard problems and then we get confronted with things or things compound over time, it's just hard and combine that with that false independence. And, and we often just get stuck and then, and stuck doesn't mean staying in place because time moves forward. Stuck means moving backwards. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think there is a narrative you know, particularly in today's climate where, you know, you see it, you know, you see it everywhere in magazines, on TV, social media, where, you know, the most successful people are warriors. They do it all on their own. They carry everything on their back. And as, as you alluded to, if you speak to any of the, the prominent people that we, that we all know about, and you know, these are just the prominent people, so this will clearly be relevant to people that are doing well regardless of what field that aren't noted but you know branson elon musk th- th- those people they have amazing teams so they they're, a- they're able to have people that are better better than them at certain things and they they coexist right perfectly together which means that you know elon musk and richard branson and others they are the people that the people that we see on the magazines right. in TV and so on and so on. But there's a linchpin of people that support them that allow, you know, their success to happen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like we celebrate, we celebrate Steve Jobs, for example, we mm. think Steve Jobs, what an amazing entrepreneur he was. Well, the, the meteoric rise of Steve Jobs was largely during the time when Tim Cook, now the CEO, was Steve Jobs' chief operations officer. Mm. Because Cook is a master at operations, Mm. right? And we recognize that. We don't think Jeff Bezos is reviewing, you know, is submitting the the, uh, corporate taxes to the Internal Revenue Service. We don't think Jeff Bezos is reviewing every minute level of human resource policy Mm. at Amazon. Jeff Bezos has uh, typically a, what we call a C-suite. So he's got like a chief legal officer, chief HR officer, and so on, chief information, chief technology, and so on. And then they have people and they have people and they have people because we recognize that no no entrepreneur would do all would run their company all by themselves. That's a solopreneur. And those are small people who rarely have a large audience or following. And yet we think when it comes to ourselves that we're suddenly supposed to be good at everything. Yeah. Like, like when it comes to corporation me, I'm supposed to be the, the, the chief legal officer, financial officer, HR officer, CIO, CTO, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Not, it's just not reality. Mm. Do, do you think that 
you know, for me actually as well, question for me personally, but also potentially for people listening, that we shouldn't be embarrassed about saying, Will, can I get your advice on something? Will, you know, could you, is there anyone you can connect me to? So, because sometimes people will think, well, mm, I don't, I'm not sure if I want to, you know, I might feel a little bit embarrassed. So what would your answer be around that type of situation? Yeah, I think we all need, I, the concept I call it is a life team. We all need a life team mm-hmm. around us. We need, a, we need a team of people that we live in mutual interdependence with. And um, I can illustrate it. I, I actually have a, a mastermind that I meet with once a month. And these are global entrepreneurs, Australia, um, England, um, uh, Canada. Wow, that is, that is global. Yeah. That's a global. Yeah. Um, yep, yep, um, Dubai. Um, so this is, this, is a, this is a mastermind that I've cultivated. It's from people that I know from my network. Um, and we get together once a month. And we ask ourselves the same three questions. What did I work on since the last time we met? What am I working on between now and the next time we get together? And how can, how can I, how can you help me mm-hmm. with something? Yeah. And so that might look like, you know, I've, I've been working on these things. Here's, here's what I got done. I'm super excited about it. Here's what, um, here's what I'm struggling with. Mm-hmm. Here's what I'm going to work on between now and next month when Amazing. we get done. And by the way, I'm having real trouble with my with my marketing strategy. Mm-hmm. Any of you guys have any suggestions on? Can you help me, or uh, is can you point me to somebody who can help me with my marketing strategy? And so I have this team of amazing entrepreneurs that I'd otherwise not have access mm-hmm. to, because we live interdependently, because we're willing to kind of share our journey together, and we do that all for the cost of a Zoom license. Yeah. <laughs> We yeah. get and an, and an hour or two hours a month. That's literally all it costs. Um, and so I I think part of it is embarrassment, but mm-hmm. I also and and I and that goes back to the false story of independence. But I think part of it too is we just don't know how. Mm-hmm. We haven't been trained. Yeah, how to- absolutely. Yeah, totally, totally. And it's actually that's a really interesting point because it's almost something that you know at college school. We should be we should start compounding grooving this behavior so because it's almost like you know let's out into the real world right you know you know we're like um you know we're all excited and you know we and we and it's very easy to crash and burn and sometimes you could be lucky you might meet somebody at the right time that's able to support you and give you some really wonderful advice and they could be somebody that you know they, they might form part of your your sort of mastery group but some people maybe aren't that lucky or maybe they're not really they don't understand how to recognize the signs when somebody is there and potentially can support them i agree and i would say that that on the subject of luck i think interdependence is a way of creating your own luck mm. So here's the deal. We all know who Elon Musk is. Yeah. But um, we have to remember that there was this decades long project to create a thing we called the public internetwork mm. that got released as the internet. And around the time it was maturing and it reached a certain level of, of awareness in the culture, 
this guy named Peter Thiel came along and he created a product called PayPal. Mm -hmm. And Elon Musk just happened to meet Peter Thiel and Elon Musk made the money that he then built his empire around. Yeah. And so there is a certain luck or fortune that that is true for all successful entrepreneurs. They just happen to, there is a a certain sense in which they were around and took advantage of something that they mm. saw an opportunity around. But I think creating networks of interdependence actually allows us to change that luck and allows yeah. us to create those opportunities in ways that don't exist for us. Mm. I mean, that's particularly true. I mean, as you know, we're seeing this, we're seeing a growing uh, le growing levels of inequality, but we often think of that in terms of economics, and that's certainly true. But it's really more about opportunity. Like, I can tell you as a trained sociologist, tell me what zip code you were born in, and I can predict with a pretty high level of of success how well you will, how well off you will be economically when you mm -hmm. pass away. Yeah. So there, there's some stuff baked into the system, but we don't have to live within those confines. Yeah. We can change them, and way, the way we change them, I think, is we begin to build these networks. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess for people, but I, I love that analogy because you know there's always a solution, there's always a way, but it is, you know, but it's not on your own. So if you happen to be be born in a certain zip code, you do have the potential, you do have the opportunity, but it, but it's not on your own. You need to have people that you know that you can connect with that are better better than you a certain thing that maybe can give you points of advice in a certain thing and actually you probably will give them pieces of advice that they're not familiar with as well so yeah. I, do, I do like that idea of you know a mastermind group there's something that i i'm not sure how this fits in i your t3 ecosystem yeah. is that is that part of your inter inter dependence formula it, it is yeah and and this is really part of my desire to create these kind of entrepreneurial opportunities um because um you know one of the things people are afraid of when when we start talking about interdependence is they're afraid that they're going to give but not get back that they're going to that it's going to be an unequal relationship there's not going to be reciprocation mm -hmm. i'm going to help somebody and they're not going to help me back one of the reasons I'm starting that I've started the T3 ecosystem is a way of sort of providing some some of the more important capital to young entrepreneurs, which is really not first and foremost financial capital. It's what I call emotional capital. Mm. You know, the problem is that you've got a lot of um, young entrepreneurs. I, I interviewed a young entrepreneur the other day. Great guy. Um, and he had. The good fortune to have somebody who provided this for him, somebody who said, you know, you're young, you've had a tough life, but I really support you in this mission you're doing. And he just raised this, I believe he just raised a series A found, uh, um, round of funding um, because he has somebody who is willing to invest that love and belief mm. in him. And so, um, you know, one of the, 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 one of the driving values of the T3 ecosystem is to actually begin to figure out how to invest love and belief in other people. Yes, we can attract uh, financial capital and we will, and we have access to, to that, but it's really more investing that initial love and belief mm. so that we can support entrepreneurs as they head off on their journey. And when I say entrepreneurs too, I'm not just talking about young entrepreneurs. There was an article in Inc. Magazine maybe a month ago that demonstrated what 
we kind of know, but doesn't fit the the cultural narrative, mm. which is that older entrepreneurs are actually far more likely to succeed than younger entrepreneurs. Mm. The most successful entrepreneur, I think, is statistically speaking, 53 years old. Um, and so T3 Ecosystems is really a way of rallying together and finding the support for those type of entrepreneurs who are who really want to create products that help change the world, don't just make money for the the investors or the founders yeah and i imagine adopting something like a t3 strategy can be the difference between some entrepreneurs you know crashing or succeeding because you need that emotional capital you know as much as the the cash capital because the the road is going to you know if, if you're an entrepreneur that wants to push boundaries wants to you know, be the the pinnacle within you know whatever field that you're that you choose to focus on. You know, it's gonna be bumpy. There's gonna be moments. You're gonna have sleepless nights. You're gonna be right. anxious, and emotional capital is, you know, you're you're the expert. But I imagine it's probably equally important as your the, the financial because if you don't have the emotional tools, then you know that's going to affect your decisions it's going to affect the way that you show up for yourself for your team for your family for investors the whole ecosystem yeah and it's also going to affect your longevity i can speak from deep personal experience here so i had a startup in the late 90s the company uh, was called smart ministry so we were looking at nonprofits and particularly religious nonprofits but nonprofits in general because very few nonprofit leaders started the started the nonprofit because they wanted to do accounting because they wanted to manage databases of member names, you know? Um, And this was back in the nineties before we had a lot of the tools that now automate this work, MailChimp and the CRM tools and all that. And so we started, I started a company that was a aggregate. It was really an application service provider that was pre SaaS, pre software as a service, trying to figure out how to aggregate these, um, these various services so that nonprofits would have a single portal to go to, to do all their administrative work. And I described that to nonprofits leaders now. And they're like, yeah, I would buy that mm. day. Well, I'll tell you the story of it, which is this was during the dot-com bubble. So this was late nineties. We were going, 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 going. And we finally got an investor. It was one of the early investors in Apple who was interested in investing in the product. And we got a, on a plane, Paul, from from uh, San Francisco, just feeling elated. Like mm. we had we had won. Like <laughs> we were one of those guys, right? Yeah. And then nothing. The sound of silence. We we heard nothing from the guy. To this day, I don't know actually know what happened. Mm. And the reality is that we still had some burn left in us. We probably could have survived another three mm. to six months yeah. and made it profitable, but. We were so emotionally exhausted mm. after that experience that we all just dropped it and went back and got normal jobs. And it was more mm. than a decade before my next entrepreneurial venture because yeah. I was just emotionally worn out mm. that I, I just didn't feel like I could go on. And that emotional capital is, is critical to entrepreneurial success, mm. especially if we are not um, flying into the center of the market. So. If it's something Google, if it's some, if it's something you can find a Google search term for, you can start a company around it, and somebody's going to invest in that, and mm. you'll be okay. If you're trying to change the culture and you're trying to change companies that really 
change even what we think is possible. I mean, you think about the iPhone before Steve Jobs invented it. That was beyond latent demand strategy. Like mm. people, people could barely even conceive of what mm. Jobs had in mm. mind. Um, but he had a record of success and he had people around him to support mm. him in that work. For entrepreneurs who are starting new ventures that don't uh, aren't as obvious, but could be absolutely critical to maybe even our existential survival as mm. a species on this planet, they really need all the support they can get. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just in hindsight, do you think knowing what you know now around interdependence, when you guys created your startup in the late nineties, yeah, and the, the Silicon Valley, you know, nothing came back. Having the toolkit that you have now, do you, how would you approach that now? Do you think that you would do all that differently? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. For one thing, I would have built the company differently from the ground up, mm-hmm. and so um, that's back in the days when I was still writing co- software code. I wrote. The application. I literally, I created the application from the ground up in a language called Cold Fusion. I'm not not even sure if they use it anymore. It was Cold Fusion and SQL. Um, So I literally wrote the application from the ground up. Um, I did most of the graphics. I was able to hire somebody to help me with some of the graphics for Mm -hmm. the site and the marketing uh, promotional material. Um, And then eventually I brought some people along, but but that's the model that I'm trying to break mm. break down, which is we should never do that. Like, no, <laughs> that's this idea of this sort of single charge ahead individual entrepreneur yeah. is only going to create the same kind of products. It's going to mm. create more Facebooks and more Twitters. Mm. It's not necessarily going to create those products that are, you know, could could actually change culture, could change the future, our future self and our future world. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. and. Obviously, so yeah, something that I, I think, again, I got this from your TEDx talk. So the a student who broke his uh, tooth that you guys supported him, if you can expand on that, and also the group, the collective that you've got where you are supporting people, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. You bet. Yeah. So <clears throat> 17, eight, well, 18 years ago, the idea started. We've been in business for almost 18 years. Um. So there was a group of us that were that were friends, but we were in very different places. And so some of us lived in suburban or urban areas where there was a lot of economic opportunity and we were doing well. We were doing well financially. But then there was about half of our group as well that were doing work primarily in urban areas, but also some in very rural areas where there was significant poverty. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen some version of this statistic, but at least in the United States, the average American say say that they couldn't survive a surprise emergency bill of more than four hundred dollars without um, really being wrecked. Like they literally mm. couldn't they couldn't have a four hundred dollar car repair without being wrecked. They couldn't have a four hundred dollar HV, you know, heating bill without being wrecked. And, and we were recognized that the, the figure wasn't quite as bad then, but it was pretty bad. And we realized that people were living in economic isolation. And so we, we started asking the basic design question, how do we help end economic isolation? And we knew that there was a lot of macro solutions. There was Bono and the One Campaign and all these big campaigns, which we supported and which are great. But we also recognized that we had these friends who were interacting with people in need and we had resources but not really any efficient way to get the resources directly to the people in need. 
so often we give to these large organizations, whether it's one or United, United Way or Red Cross, and those are all great organizations. Mm -hmm. But so much of that money ends up going into bricks and mortar and staff and people mm -hmm. and not into direct support. So we asked the question, what would it be like if we just pitched our money in that we would have otherwise been giving maybe to a religious organization or a community organization? We pitched that money into a common pot. And then as needs came up, we would bring them to the group and we would talk about them and possibly vote on them. But see, it's a it was a way of sort of making philanthropy deeply relational. That's part of the problem. So much of philanthropy is arm's length. It's not really relational. We said, how could we make it relational? And so what came out of that was an experiment that eventually came to be called common change. It was originally called relational tithe because a lot of us were coming out of former church backgrounds. So we understood the concept of tithe, like that's a churchy word and it mm. made sense to us. Finally, we realized well, it's not really what we're doing. We're, we're, we're creating common change. And so we, we created, we renamed the organization in common change and we do that. And we, we give our, we, each of us contributes a certain amount into a common fund every so often, every week, month, year, whatever it works in our giving cycle. And then as needs come up, we bring them to the group and we decide if we want to meet them. And so the example I give in the TEDx talk, I was just, I was teaching at a college in Kentucky called Georgetown College. Most people think of the big Georgetown here in D.C. Yeah. This was Georgetown College, a much smaller school. And um, I had a lot of kids from Appalachia, which is the sort of southeastern part of West Virginia and Kentucky. Very poor, very rural. Um, but they were, there were a lot of kids coming to college and they were the first for a lot of kids. They were the first ones in their family to go to college. Many of them first, some of them first ones in their family mm. to graduate high school. And so there was this young kid, great kid. He was one of my students. He was a sociology major. So I knew him well and he was doing work study. So he was, he had a job on campus, which helped pay for his room and board. And then he was, um, he had a scholarship for his academic needs because he was super bright. Um, and in his work study, he was doing maintenance outside. He fell down and he broke his two front teeth and this kid's choices were then leave school to make money to pay for dental repairs for his two front teeth or or just go around life with missing his, his mm. two front teeth. Terrible options, right? And yeah. this is people who live in economic isolation face these kind of options all the mm. time. And so I said, hey, I said to this guy, hey, let me let me look into something for you. We went and we we had him go to the dentist and get an estimate. I brought the need to the group and we said, yeah, this is worth it. We, we support this guy. We support you. In, and, and, it, and I was able to bring the need, by the way, because I knew him. We were in relationship to yeah. each other. So it wasn't just some random person. Yeah. Brought the need to the group. We said, yes, let's meet that. And that kid is doing, he's not a kid anymore. He's a fully grown man mm. doing some amazing social work in the world yeah. because he was able to keep going and he has two front teeth. Mm. Uh, as recently as yesterday, we had a, a friend in North Carolina who knew somebody in, in his neighborhood who was unable to get his car fixed. He needed $350 to get his car fixed. We talked about it. We provided that. that That's amazing. Need. I love that. I love that. And also what I love about that is it, it kind of, in a, in a climate in a time where we don't really hear, you know, all the news that's going on around the world it's difficult to find good heartwarming stories about people just doing things good things for people 
without any agenda apart from we want to help we want to actually give somebody an opportunity so it's lovely to hear that and that those recipients you know there's almost a domino effect where you know these are good people and they're going to remember it it's going to mean a lot to them and they're going to use that as some of the fuel to achieve plus also give to others so there's a lovely domino effect there i love that you know what i wanted to ask you now is around so people i'm sure are, are really tuning in to this idea of interdependence and they can get a lot more of it via your podcast a revolution of independence of interdependence so can you maybe tell us a little bit about your podcast you know how we you know when it when you when you publish it when it's aired and what people can expect yeah thank you yes it comes out every monday and i interview people who are focused broadly on the question of interdependence and who have a story to tell. And um, I ask a question every, every episode starts with the same question, which is, tell me a story of somebody or some group that made a difference for you. Someone that you looking back now, they were one of the people that helped get you to where you are. One of the people that helped you succeed. And it's, it's so great to watch, uh, Paul, because sometimes I remember to ask them that ahead of time, but often I will ask them right on the air. Yeah. Like, and this light goes off. They're like, yeah. oh, I forgot. I had this boss. I had this teacher, mm. uh, my mom, this neighbor, whatever. And we get these stories and suddenly we realize, mm. oh, my great gosh, question. we are all interconnected. Mm. We are all mutually dependent on each other. Um, and so, yeah, the, the podcast came out of the TED Talk. So I gave the TED Talk, which was called A Revolution of Interdependence. Um, and then I wanted to figure out how to really, like, how can I keep this conversation going forward? I, mm. I started actually initially working on a documentary, which I'm still, it's still sort of in the, on the back burner, but um, a documentary is a lot of work. It yeah. takes a lot of time and frankly, money. Yeah. And a podcast was a real opportunity to help get people's voices out. And so I've been honored to uh, interview some great guests, including you. Mm. And that'll be out in a few weeks um, to really help people, you know, to help magnify their stories so that we realize, look, we're all in this together. You know, globally, we feel this sense of a loss of meaning. Mm. There's a great book by a guy named Jamie Wheel, who I, I like a lot, um, and it's it's called Recapture the Rapture. And um, Jamie talks about the fact that, you know, for most of human civilization, we had meaning 1.0, which was the kind of uh, God, God narrative or the religious narrative. In modern times, we've had meaning 2.0, which was the science narrative. And what we find is both of them are failing us quite miserably, frankly, although science is giving us, you know, amazing leaps and bounds. It, it, it is at the same time driving a divide where more people are sad, more people are depressed and more people are finding themselves without the same level of opportunity than their parents had. It's interesting statistic, at least in the United States, if um, if you were if you were in your 30s. In 1970, you had a 92% chance that you would make more than your parents did in their 30s at the same age. In 2016, if you were in your 30s, you had less than a 50% chance you would make more than your parents did at the same age. Wow. So we've seen no all idea. this. 
Yeah, we've seen all this amazing growth in technology and science has given us amazing results, but it has left out the tr- like a real sense of meaning. And I think what we are deeply longing for is to be reconnected with other humans and to feel like we're working together on this human project. Mm. We're working yeah. on this project. Yeah. There's a huge, you know, that's really interesting. I didn't know those stats. And it's clearly a, a huge failing somewhere along the, the line where so- society is so confused right. and, you know, tunnel visions on, on the wrong stuff. Some of right. it's the right stuff, but a lot of it isn't. So there's a, you know, so that, there's a lot of people that are getting, I guess, missed out. And, you know, and the, the reality is that if we're able to support these people interdependence, then these people will be happier, they will be more fulfilled, they will be doing things, they'll have the confidence and the network and the support to do things that they're interested in, which actually means it all feeds society. So, you know, so it, it, it makes the fabric of society you know more prosperous happier more harmony less challenges and it's um yeah i don't know i don't you know i don't know how to fix it unfortunately but what what you've just cited is very interesting i'm conscious of time so what i wanted to ask you so for people that uh, are listening uh, and are fascinated by interdependence and potentially i know that you support entrepreneurs businesses what's the best way for people to get in contact with you yeah the absolute best way is to just go to my website will sampson without uh, without a p so com, um, and you can sign up for my weekly newsletter that'll tell you what's coming out in the podcast uh it's a short i give put out a short little bit of insight every uh week it's three to four paragraphs people we don't have a lot of time to read these long newsletters yeah, yeah. I put out a short a short newsletter and I give everybody an action step to take every week. Um, you can um, also sign up for notification. I've got a course coming out on the Teachable platform called How to Create Lasting Transformation in Your Life. And that should uh, debut sometime in the next two weeks. And you can get um, information on that. And certainly anybody that's interested in coaching as well, that's the way to, to reach out to uh, find me and to get coaching from me. I am on the usual suspect of, of um, platforms. I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as Will Sampson Change Coach. Um, so that's uh, that's Lovely. sort of what in the world. Okay, fabulous. And what I will do, I will put all those details on the show notes. Thank you. I'll probably possibly put even the book by um, is it Jamie Will. That sounds quite interesting. So, Yeah, and it's then. W-H-E-A-L, Will. Okay, I spelled that incorrectly, so thank you. Yeah. So, so Will, so at the end of every episode of uh, My Perfect Failure, we have a recurring question. Right. And the recurring question is, so if you could invite three inspirational people for dinner, who might you invite? I, I both love and hate this question. <laughs> I, I love the question because it's absolutely brilliant. It's so good. I, I'm imagining this dinner party already. I, I wish... What I wish is I could have a whole feast of of the people. You, if you ever see the video on this, you'll see that I've got a bunch of books behind me, and I'd love to have all Re- of revolving door maybe from my bookshelf yeah. at this dinner. So, but I did. I was able to sort of narrow it down to three, and um, 
And they're probably the three people that have been most influential in my life. I'm mm. in my thinking, I should say, in my yeah. thinking. So the first is Dr. Brene Brown. Mm. If you know Brene Brown, master uh, researcher, just a crack smart academic mm. who also has this popular mm. way of, of sharing uh, information with people. She, I talk, you know, in the TED talk, I talk about vulnerability and courage. Mm. I learned that from Brene. So yeah. I would love to have Brene at this dinner. She's my only living guest. Okay. My second guest would be Dietrich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So I did my PhD on community, um, but had I done it in another field, I was actually going to do it. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a anti-war activist in Hitler, Germany, um, who created this alternative school to try and really help train people on how to live differently. And unfortunately, he died in the uh, in the death camps. And then I know this sounds like a theme, but this is really the third person, regardless of mm. the person who didn't die in the death camps is Viktor Frankl. And that would be my third. Yeah. So it'd be Renee Brown, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Viktor Frankl. And, you know, if somebody ever does a meta analysis of everything I've ever written, they would clearly see Frankl being the most mm. quoted person yeah. in all my work because he, you know, what, what, what is meaning according to Frankl? He's, you know, having a, um, having a redemptive project to work on, having mm. a, a redemptive having a project to work on, having a redemptive perspective on your suffering and, and then having a project to work on. So this project redemption and, and doing it with other people is, was sort of Frankel's thing. So I am a huge, those would be my three, you know, dream yeah. parties. I that, guess. That, they, so that would be a wonderful dinner. It would be an inspirational dinner. I think um, you would be like, you know what? I'd love to, meet you for so this is clearly hypothetical but i'd love to meet you for a coffee you know yeah or, or zoom after you've had the day after you've had that. <laughs> oh yes please <laughs> exactly. you you know i was just like i wouldn't say anything i would just i would have the the coffee right. and the croissant right. ready <laughs> right. Just, like, right. you probably wouldn't touch exactly probably an, an hour would be done they're yep. gone. They're gone. Uh, Will, it's, you know, I really, really enjoyed talking to you. I've, you know, we've had a couple of discussions and they've all been wonderful. So thank you for your time. Thank you for bringing interdependence to the fore. I really think it's something that is missing. I think it's something that I'm sure everybody's listening to this will be just, you know, not just inspired, but, you know, just really. Um, just the knowing that there's something there that they can actually use to either for themselves or even for somebody that they know struggling a little bit so and and clearly interdependence is for everybody so thank you so much definitely gonna keep on uh you know watching reading your stuff and hopefully we can do this again that's great thank you paul thanks for the opportunity and thank you readers for listening this was our listeners for listening rather this was such a great uh, time together so thank you Absolutely. You're very welcome. And thank you, everybody, for tuning into this episode of My Perfect Failure. We're always looking to grow the show. So please do share the podcast far and wide. And your feedback is most welcome. We're keen to hear about the things you like and equally the things that you don't like. And uh, if you've got any questions or any feedback, you can find me at Paul Padmore at MyPerfectFailure.com. And there's, a, there's actually a, a contact uh, page on the website. So please feel free to send in any questions, observation, 
feedback or even amazing ideas or even guest suggestions. So until the next time, take care for now. Bye. Thanks for listening to My Perfect Failure podcast. Be sure to visit www.myperfectfailure.com to join the conversation. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Look out for our next episode.